Welcome to Untangled. Whether you are a local government leader tirelessly searching for trailblazing solutions to operational hurdles, an IT professional with a zeal for public sector technology, or a curious mind intrigued by the symbiosis of technology and governance, Untangled is your platform. Join us on this fascinating journey as we explore how technology can revolutionize local governments. Effective, sustainable, cutting-edge solutions are not just for the deep pockets private sector anymore. Let's get untangled. Today we're going to talk about contracts, uh, MSAs, negotiations, milestones, and everything related to how you create this professional services agreement with your software vendor. Now keep in mind that when you buy a software as a service product, that means that you're buying a subscription to the product that you're going to use for your organization. That's very different from buying something that's going to live in your basement, in your data centers forever. So we need to talk about what that means in the new economy, what these software as a service, master service agreements mean versus contracts, and how do you define milestones within something that already exists, and how do you pay for something that you're going to use for a long time in your organization. We also want to talk about how to protect your organization from vendors that are unscrupulous. They are producing something that doesn't exist or selling you something that doesn't exist, which is called vaporware uh, in the industry. And a lot of times you'll see that when vendors come in to do demos for your organization, they'll tell you that in the next 12 months, you'll have that one functionality that you really need, but sign here today and pay us so that we can make it for you. So things like that need to be looked out for. And in this session, we'll talk about how exactly to go about defining the right elements in the contract for you and making sure that those elements always remain in your favor as you go through this process. So what is a contract? A contract is an agreement between your organization and the software vendor's organization making promises that you're going to do business a certain way. The software vendor is agreeing that they're going to sell you a subscription to their software as a service and you're agreeing to the fact that you're actually purchasing this subscription and you're gonna pay for it. Now, that's a very high level definition of what a contract is. Of course, depending on who you are, what your organization is made up of, what state you're in, your requirements will differ. Your legal team will tell you what clauses need to go into the contract, and the contract document is an agreement between you and the software vendor. The software contract itself will not have all of the particulars of the software you're buying. So you're going to have some exhibits, some addendums, some attachments to the contract that go into the very details of the contract. What exactly are you buying? How much is it costing you per unit? What the terms are for payment? And who's to blame if certain things go wrong? And what court are you going to go to if things do go wrong? Now, we'll talk about litigation later, but the best thing to do is avoid litigation. And the best way to do it is if you have your requirements and your uh, non-negotiables defined within the contract, and that needs to happen before you even start signing the contract. We need to do that in the requirements phase. So back to the contract and all of these various components. Of course, you're gonna have who the parties are, what you're getting into a contract for, what the term of the contract is, how do you define failure, how do you um, define terminations, how do you make sure that you're getting what you want from this contract. All of that goes into the contract document. Then if you're buying a software as a service product or a subscription, you're also gonna have what's called a master services agreement. The MSA defines what a particular service costs, what the boundaries of the service are, and how do you go about actually 
using the service and what it's going to cost you. The master services agreement is distinct from the contract, but it becomes a part of the overall contract package. Our clients will say, our legal team's uh, going to negotiate the contract. Well, your legal team's going to look at the contract document from a legal standpoint. They're going to look at it from the standpoint of, does the contract have the right clauses? Do all of the clauses that our state requires us to have, are they in there? Uh, are we asking for the right insurances? Are we asking for the right professional liability coverages? Your legal team probably will go to that level of detail with the contract. And more often than not, they expect the IT team or the executive team to tell them that everything that's in the proposed scope of work that was provided by the vendor is all good. Now, that may be true, but you really need to look at uh, the following few things to make sure that you're getting everything you need from this master service agreement. And it all starts with the requirements definition. So the first thing to do is define your requirements, right? You need to define them at a very critical, minute detail. If you are a finance organization or the finance arm of a large organization, uh, let's just say you're a school system. You can't just ask the vendor to show you how they do accounts payable or ask them, do you do accounts payable? You need to be very detailed because for every organization and an organization's uh, as complicated as a school system, you can't just ask for accounts payable. You need to be very specific about what that means to your organization. How do you define accounts payable? That's just one example. So you have to really define requirements and we have many videos that talk about how to do a requirements definition. I encourage you to go look at them. But requirements definition is the foundation of your contract because how else do you know what you're buying? It's like the architectural drawings of your home or your school building or your police station. You need to define it in a real detailed manner in an Excel format or whatever format you're comfortable with and then have the vendors respond to those requirements. So if you think back to the RFP phase of your project, you're gonna have these requirements in the RFP document that the vendors respond to, and you're gonna have them check off things that they can do today, not something that's in their product pipeline for two years from now or something their developers are working on actively right now. If it doesn't exist for you to see today, it doesn't exist. It's called vaporware. So make sure that your requirements are well-defined so that they can be attached to your contract and you can show the connection between the RFP response from the vendor to the contract and not just for the selection phase, but also for implementation and ongoing operations. It really becomes the bedrock of your contract compliance and keeping the vendors accountable for what they were supposed to deliver to you. So the requirements definition document is a critical element of any contract and you have to make sure that you have defined requirements at a very critical, minute level. The next thing to make sure you have in your contracts is a payment structure. We recommend payment structures for software implementations that are tied to milestones. At any point, you don't wanna pay the vendor upfront. And most contracts we look at these days and we negotiate for our clients, the first thing we look for is the payment terms. And most vendors will ask you to pay maybe the first year of SaaS fees upfront or some setup fee, or the whole contract value upfront. Never do that because you're losing leverage. You don't know how this implementation is gonna go. Most implementations last maybe a year and a half for a large organization. And if you're going through a financial HRMS, work order management, asset management system implementation, that's probably gonna take you a year and a half to two years. So how do you know if this is gonna work two years from now? Especially if you have paid the vendor upfront, you have no leverage. So what we recommend is in your contract, define 
clearly what the milestones are and how the vendor is going to get paid. And then make sure you have a mechanism to make sure that those milestones are being met and that the invoices you're receiving are actually for services being delivered to you. Services, when they're delivered to you, need to be accepted. There needs to be a, an acceptance process, a sign-off process, and you have to really make sure that the vendor's delivering what, what's being promised or what's on the invoice. The next thing to consider and include in your contract is risk management. How are you going to manage the risk of a large ERP implementation? Remember, this is one of the biggest things you're going to do as a CFO, as a CIO, as, as the chief executive of any organization. The biggest thing you're going to do is replace your ERP system. And if done right, this should be a once-in-a-lifetime or a once-in-a-career opportunity for you to do this. If you do this right, you won't have to do this at the same organization again. But it's risky. So how do you manage that risk? And the risk comes from the unknown, meaning the vendor you chose through a very rigorous process, they may get bought out. They may have a change in leadership. They may choose to discontinue the product they just sold you. So how do you manage for that risk? You need to define within your contract what happens in any of these scenarios and make sure that the vendor is signing off on these elements within your contract. Risk management also applies to cybersecurity, obviously. So it's, this one goes back to having your IT strategy, your cybersecurity posture well-defined and well-documented so that it can be added to your RFP. You need to make sure that the vendor is responding and responsive and adhering to your cybersecurity policies, not the other way around. So when you put all of these things together into the risk portion of your contract, this will go hand in hand with what your lawyers are asking you for, right? They're going to ask you, uh, the vendor, to make sure that they have the right liability coverages, the right professional liability, cyber insurance, but insurance only applies or is useful when you have your house in order. So make sure that you're defining risk, not just for the procurement phase of this project, but also through the implementation and ongoing operations, which will then be included in your contract. The next critical element within your contract need to be the definitions. Now, you know you're buying software. You know you're buying a subscription to a cloud-hosted solution. But what does that mean? You need to be real clear in your contract on what these things mean to you and the vendor. And if there is a disagreement on what that means, then you have a problem within your contract. So we would recommend really defining what the cloud means. Because to a vendor, could it be one server somewhere in someone else's house? Or is it a multi-location, co-located space where they have multiple locations where your data is going to live? What is the definition of cloud? The second thing is, how do you define software as a service? Some lawyers will argue that you need to define what software means. You need to define what service means. And how do these things come together? So really define what software as a service means to you and what your obligations are versus what the vendor's obligations are to make sure that the software is up and running at all times. I think the most important definition in any contract should be the definition for go live. In my experience, the vendor will try to define what go live should mean to you. To them, it means, is the system implemented? Is it installed in your servers? Are the lights blinking green and there are no reds? But meanwhile, you can't run payroll checks and you can't pay your vendors. So what does go live mean? Make sure you define go live when you do phase one of your project, which needs to be the definitions, the requirements, getting ready for an implementation. 
And at that time, you need to really define what go live means to you in the context of your day jobs. If you're a school system, if you're a police department, you all have day jobs and you all have day-to-day -day functions you do that the public trusts you with. So if a vendor comes in and says, we're going to go live on Jan 1 or March 1, and it happens to be the audit week or something very important is going on, it doesn't make sense to have a go live day then. So the first thing to do when defining go live is really looking at your exception calendar. What dates is your team not available? What are blackout dates? What are vacation dates? You need to define that at a very, very detailed level. And then you can have a fuzzy go live date. Go live dates tend to be, in my opinion, fuzzy because you need to have wiggle room in case the vendor doesn't deliver, in case the software doesn't do what it's supposed to do. You need to have the room to back out of a predetermined go live date and push it out to a more convenient date. But remember, the vendor is going to say a go live is per their definition when the products are installed and implemented. To you, it should be, is it useful? And all of that needs to be defined and included in a contract or a master service agreement. In any contract, the vendor is going to ask for a price escalation year on year, especially in a SaaS contract when you're buying a subscription to their product. Price escalations are built into many kinds of contracts. We've seen those in construction contracts, software development contracts, but in a SaaS contract, it's a little different. You can cap it. And of course, when you're negotiating a contract, you have to be cognizant of the fact that there will be some price escalations, but the vendor is going to throw out the biggest price escalation per year they can at you. Now, you can refuse to do that. You can throw out other terms that you want and really get to a point where you're not paying too much more uh, as an escalation year on year for the same product. In many cases, we see that the vendor will ask for a large sum of money upfront or all of it upfront, but their product takes a year, year and a half to implement and be useful. Don't do that. This goes back to our discussion on how do you structure pricing and payments and milestones. But at the same time, you have to plug in the escalation clause here too, because why would you pay 3% more for a product that hasn't gone live in year two? So defining what that timeline looks for you, defining what escalations mean, defining what your cap for escalations is, and really what the milestones are within the implementation timeline should dictate how you define this in your contract. Because keep in mind, a software as a service contract, if done right, this should be the one product you use for the lifetime of the organization, or at least for your term uh, or tenure at the organization. So price escalations are an important part of a SaaS agreement, but also there is no one standard. If the vendor proposes something ludicrous, you have every right to go back and say, no, we're not going to pay 10% year on year, but we can agree to 2% after three years. So think about how you want to define price escalations. Let's talk about red flags as you're negotiating a contract. And we see these all the time because we negotiate hundreds of contracts over the years. The first thing to look for is, is the vendor creating chaos in your organization? And the biggest red flag is if you have multiple points of contact that the vendor is reaching out to and giving same or different information at different times. Now, we've been through these situations before when the client doesn't know who's in charge. They know who the sales guy is or the gal is on the vendor side, but that salesperson is reaching out to multiple people within your organization and giving them the same information or more information in one case and not so much in the other. What that does is 
it creates chaos within your organization. You don't know who's in charge. You're having multiple streams of conversations with the same vendor, and now the vendor can play you off against each other. Well, so-and-so director said this, are you okay with that? Take your information, go back to the other director and say the opposite thing. Creates chaos, you don't know who's in charge, and all the vendor is trying to do is create chaos within your organization. So that's a huge red flag. And what that leads to is delays in the contract negotiation process. And at worst, you might sign something out of frustration just to end the process, just to get out of the misery. So in those situations, the best thing to do is slow the process down. Slow it down, get everybody on your team in the same room and say, here's all the information I got from this vendor, what do you have? And then at the end of that meeting, you should have one clear leader on your end that does the negotiation. And we step in from our client's perspective on their side to do negotiations all the time. And we take over contract negotiations that are in shambles. Um, and a very easy, quick thing to do is to have one designated point of contact that the vendor is supposed to respond to and reach out to and talk to about the contract. Let's talk about termination. Let's assume you never have to go through this. but software projects fail. You've seen the statistic, 80% of software projects fail. I don't know how much it's true, but it's a statistic that's used widely within the industry. Software projects fail for a variety of different reasons, and we've covered them in many different videos, all the way from lack of project management, bad vendors, bad software, you name it. Projects can fail despite your best efforts. So how do you get out of a bad contract with a software vendor that didn't deliver? We've done this for many clients, and we hope we never have to do it again, but it happens. Contract termination is a difficult process because you have clause built in there to protect both sides. The vendor is going to say, no, we delivered everything you asked us to, and the client, you, are going to say, no, your product doesn't work. So how do you get out of this contract? The vendor will say, of course you can get out of the contract, but you have to pay us everything you owe us for the next 10 years. Now, that's ridiculous, and you shouldn't be doing that. So where's the common ground? Contract terminations can happen for cause or for no cause. For cause means that you have specific reasons to say that the vendor violated the contract, didn't deliver on their promises, and therefore you deserve to get out of it. Now, the difficulty in that four-class termination is that more often than not, you may not have documented everything that you claim to not have received. So terminations can be difficult. And when you don't have documentation to prove that the vendor is not delivering, you now have to pay SaaS fees that you owe or keep going with the contract. And, and those two situations are completely bad. So our recommendations always are make sure you have a full-time project management team that they're documenting everything, that you're going back to the requirements definition that the vendor signed off on to make sure that they're delivering what they promised to you in the RFP response. That's what's in your contract. So you've tried everything, you're trying to get out of a bad contract, and now you have no other options but to go to litigation. Now, this is all defined in your contract. You have to define, there's arbitration clauses, you can have a third-party negotiator, uh, third-party uh, intermediary that will try and resolve this issue for you. And if, you, if you've done all of those things that are remedies within the contract, now it's time for litigation. And in my experience, that's not where you want to be. 
Contract negotiations are hard, but litigations are harder. Of course, they drag on for years, and there is no clear answer. There may be blame on both sides, and the chances of success are very low. So in our experience and in our recommendation, don't let it go to litigation. And the best way to do it is to have defined requirements and definitions and a clear understanding of what you're buying from your vendor. If you have all of those things documented from the very beginning, you have a great project management team that's keeping an eye on the most minute details so that the vendors are always held accountable for their actions, their product, and their services. This will never lead to termination or litigation. So the best way to do this, the best way to do contract negotiations, contract formulations, and increase your chance of success is to have everything defined up front. Make your own definitions for go live, for what success looks like, how are you going to pay the vendor, Put all of that in the contract, and then life should be good. If you need help defining your requirements, redesigning business processes, or negotiating a contract, please give Avera a call. We're always in your corner and never aligned with the vendor. That's a wrap on today's episode of Untangled. For more exciting insights, remember you can find Avero on YouTube at Avero Advisors and other social media platforms. And don't miss out on our weekly newsletter on LinkedIn where we delve even deeper into digital transformation. Interested in a career at Avero? Simply visit our Career Center on our website to see how you can join our team. Thank you for joining us on Untangled, your reliable source for understanding the intricate crossroads of technology and local governance. Until next time.